Today we are wrapping up our study in the book of Micah. And hopefully by now we've had had five weeks so far. Hopefully by now we've uh, clearly seen that there were some issues among God's people. Um, uh, As Micah gave his messages and they're recorded here, we, we see that God's people had rebelled against him. They were, they were caught in sin. And, and one of the things that we've hopefully noticed is that that applies to all of God's people. That applied to the northern kingdom, that applied to the southern kingdom, that applied to both the leaders and the common people. Uh, it, it was those in the cities, those in the outlying areas. We've also clearly seen that God had a response to that sin and to that rebellion taking place among his people. And so God spoke boldly and clearly about the just judgment that was coming from God. Now, in the near term, that that judgment was going to be delivered by the Assyrians, and then in the longer term, it would be delivered by the Babylonians to the southern kingdom. And, And if that was all that there was, to Micah's messages, if the entire book was just highlighting the sins of the people and then what God's just judgment was going to be, the people would have been left without hope. Uh, I mean, they would end up being rejected by God and destined to nothing more than just judgment upon them. That's what they would face. But as, as we've talked about in previous weeks, and as we're going to focus on more intently this morning, each of Micah's three messages ended with a firm statement of hope. There was hope in the midst of all of that, in the midst of the people's sin and God's just judgment upon sin being delivered. There was hope that the situation and the people could be restored. Now the question might be, how? How is there hope in the midst of that? I mean, how in the midst of such, such rebellion and such sin could there be any hope? How, how can a, a people who've done what they've done be made whole, be made right once again? How can there be any hope in that situation? The answer to that question is found as we study the theme of a remnant, which is the central part of the statements of hope that Micah gives. So so when we think about a remnant, that word, practically speaking, a, a remnant is, is something which remains, something that is left over. It, it always refers to something smaller than, something fewer than the original. And so because of that, we might think about the word remnant as, as something second rate, something less than the best. I mean, it might be, might be thought of in the, in the same light as we think about the leftovers from a meal sitting in the back of our fridge, right? That's a remnant of a meal, something that at one point was aromatic and crisp and tasty, but now it's like, eh, I'll, I'll go with something else, right? But that's not how a remnant is spoken of in Micah or other places in the Bible. When, when God 
speaks about a remnant, that is a very good thing. Not leftovers in the refrigerator. It is good. It is a thing which inspires hope. It inspires praise. It is a thing which, in the midst of seemingly long odds against it, comes through victoriously. That's remnant, as we'll see this morning. So, so even though God has proclaimed judgment upon his sinful people, he also speaks of a remnant who will come out the other side of that judgment. And most importantly, as, as we'll see this morning, he doesn't just speak about a remnant. He is actively involved in bringing that remnant to be. So, so there's four passages that we're going to focus on this morning where this hope of a remnant shines through brightly. And, and, and as we are reading and discussing these passages, we first have to keep in mind these are God's words through Micah spoken to the people of Israel at that time. All right, we can't miss that, that this promise of hope is given to those people then in that context. We have to start there. But we'll end talking about, we, we also can't miss that this promise extends beyond this single group of people. And we'll end our time this morning talking about where all the people of God ought to see themselves in this remnant. So our first uh, passage this morning is Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It's page 777 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow with me. Micah chapter 2, verse 12, this is the end of the first message, and it says this, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in a pasture, in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through and the gate, they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. So when God's just judgment upon the people is, is meted out through the Assyrians, through the Babylonians, the destruction of towns and cities and, and property was all part of what that judgment would entail. But it was also going to result in the people in both the northern and southern kingdoms being taken into exile. Many in the northern nation of Israel were taken into exile by the, by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Many in the southern nation of Judah were taken into exile by the Babylonians in three different waves, and it, it culminated in the fall of Jerusalem in 586 BC. So this means that, that the pain and suffering delivered by those two nations wasn't just a one-and-done thing. They didn't just come, conquer, and then leave. They captured and deported many of God's people, resettling them back in their own regions. So if there's going to be a message of hope, it's going to have to be more than just a message of, of rebuilding cities or of peace in the promised land. It's going to have to be more than that. What also needs to be included is a, is a gathering or, or a return of the people to the promised land. And that's the picture that we are given in verse 12. 
we are given that very promise. God acting like a, a shepherd caring for his flock is going to gather his scattered people and bring them back together. And, and it's in that first metaphor that we see this word remnant used for the first time in the book of Micah. So even though there's going to be many who will die at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and even though there will be those among God's people who will continue in their rebellion and their rejection of him, there will be a remnant whom he will gather as a loving shepherd would. Now, the people ought to have been familiar with the famous Psalm of David, Psalm 23, that speaks of the Lord being their shepherd. Micah's message proclaims hope that the remnant will directly experience the, the gathering work of their shepherd. But as we might imagine, the people taken into captivity, into exile, weren't going to just be easily released by their captors. I mean, why, why would that happen? It wouldn't be of benefit for them to do so. Why would they let the captured people go who are now serving them? They would naturally oppose it. And, and so the promise in verse 13 is that the shepherd would open the breach or, 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 or break, break open the way, as some translations would say. He would be the king who goes before them and leads them out of captivity. The, the, their shepherd's not going to be some pushover who bends to the will of others. I mean, the opposite of that, their, their shepherd will be the one who will engage their captors and bring about his will for his chosen remnant. So, so the message of hope at the end of Micah chapter 2 is that the scattered, exiled people will be brought back together as a remnant, and the promised reuniting and freedom will be accomplished by their good shepherd. God's going to bring them back, and he's, he's going to make it happen. That's the promise in Micah chapter 2. Well, again, this, this theme continues. If you turn with me to Micah chapter 4, starting in verse 6, this promise is spoken about and expanded upon. Micah 4, 6 says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who've been driven away, those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. So these words of hope begin with another mention, God assembling, gathering those who've been scattered. But this time, the nature of those being gathered is highlighted. The remnant is described as the lame, twice that word is used, the lame, the afflicted, and, and those cast off. That's an all-star roster, don't you think? God's choosing the lame, the afflicted, and those cast off. I mean, if you're picking and choosing ones to be part of your chosen remnant, that's probably not who you'd choose. But God does. 
That's who God chooses. And, and in fact, you might argue that those being chosen by God cannot bring anything of value in order to help with this task of being gathered and set free from captivity. There's nothing that they can offer to what's taking place here. And I would say that's exactly the point. That's the point of this. God's chosen remnant is not able to provide those things for itself. It simply wouldn't be possible for God's chosen remnant to become prideful regarding their victory. I mean, maybe they could. I guess you could become prideful about anything, but it wouldn't be logical for them to be prideful about what is taking place. God chose them. God is doing the work. It would be it would be evident to all who clearly assessed the situation that God himself was the shepherd who powerfully set his people free and brought them back together. So we see the nature of the remnant here. And then in addition to that, Micah tells us that the Lord will reign over and reign with his chosen remnant from that time forth and forevermore. So rather than God's people residing in a land where they are enslaved and where an evil king rules over them, God brings his remnant back into the land of freedom where he lovingly reigns over them and empowers them to reign with him. That's the promise of hope. And again, because they're lame and afflicted and cast off, they can't claim any sort of superiority in this position that they've been given reigning with God. They can only give praise, really, to their wonderful shepherd and king who looked favorably upon them and worked mightily on their behalf, making them, in, them into this remnant. Well, that's, uh, we're only halfway. That's two of the four passages we're going to look at. And, and, and again, we'll get to application at the end, but, but can we... Start to maybe make some connections between God's people then and God's people now. Are we seeing ourselves in this remnant that Micah is talking about? That's, that's, that's what we'll get to at the end. The third, third passage, uh, Micah chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 7. So I'd encourage you to follow with me there. Micah 5, 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. And you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities and in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So in that passage, the first three verses there use metaphors to describe what will be the remnant's relationship with their enemies. So during the time of 
judgment when, when Assyria and Babylon attacked and defeated and captured God's people, those opposing nations were victorious over God's people. They, they, they appeared at least to be victorious. They were, they were victorious in the intermediate time. But through his chosen remnant, God would bring about a different result in the time to come. And, and these metaphors speak to that point. In, in verse 7, the picture is that of dew that, that comes from the Lord, showers or, or rain, which also comes from the Lord. Micah states that, that God's remnant would be like dew or rain, which, which doesn't delay for anyone. So in other words, mankind cannot control the dew or the rain. And we're a little better at predicting it than we've been in history, but we don't control it, do we? So will God's remnant not be controlled by their enemies. And in verse 8, the picture is that of a lion. A lion is considered the apex predator. A lion is not controlled by any other animal. So in other words, again, God's remnant will be like a lion, which is not controlled by its enemies. And then in verse 9, the remnant's victory over their enemies is, is spoken of more directly. So, so even though God's people will seem to be defeated as his judgment comes upon them by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the final outcome will be that God's chosen remnant will have final victory over their enemies. And when we incorporate that into what we've already read in the previous passages, we, we know that this victory will come due to the work of the shepherd and the king working through his remnant. It won't be, won't be the might of the remnant that brings about the victory. It'll be the shepherd and king bringing about that victory. Then at the end of chapter 5, what, what we're informed of is that the remnant is also going to be cleansed of their sins. We, now, we, we looked at this passage a few weeks ago, specifically as it pertained to idolatry. All of the things listed there, we can turn into idols in our lives. But more generally speaking, God will cut off those things among his people. If you, again, look at the end of verse 9. He says, all your enemies shall be cut off. Well, the, 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 the first thing they'd probably do is think about the Assyrians, the Babylonians. Those are our enemies. They're going to be cut off. Well, our enemies are, are more than that, right? His remnant will be cleansed from their sins. That's their, that's their real enemy, right? Satan and sin. Assyria, Babylon, Babylon, they weren't the foremost enemies. Satan and sin are the foremost enemies of God's people. So true victory over their enemies, which is promised in verses 7 through 9, will ultimately show itself in the cleansing provided in verses 10 through 15. It's not just victory over Babylon. This is victory over sin. Final passage is Micah chapter 7. Again, this is the, the end of the third message of Micah. And a remnant is part of this promise as well. Starting chapter 7, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. 
until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they shall come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain. The earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. So, Micah doesn't pull any punches when talking about the judgment of God. God's people will fall. They will sit in darkness. They will bear the indignation of the Lord, right? Just judgment is coming. We've, we've talked about that. What we might say is that that just judgment will leave them bruised. But a bruise upon our body is not a mortal blow. And so will God's people, the remnant, not be destroyed. Micah talks about the remnant rising again. Although sitting in darkness, the Lord will be a light to them. Although bearing the indignation of the Lord, their, their cause will be pled and they will see themselves vindicated. I, I think this has echoes of Paul's words to the church in Corinth. You know, Paul spoke of being afflicted, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, not destroyed. Uh, not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. God does not promise to his remnant that there will be no suffering. But he does promise that they will not be destroyed. And then in addition to being bruised, but not destroyed, God's remnant, as, as we continue on, will be fully restored. They will be fully restored. We, we see that in verse 14 speaks of, of dwelling in places of fruitfulness in the presence of their shepherd. Um, the, it says the, the garden land, literally in the Hebrew, that's, that's Carmel. Um, speaks of Bashan and Gilead. Uh, Carmel, Mount Carmel was, was a mountain which even, even in times of drought everywhere else was, was known to be watered and fertile. Uh, Bashan, Gilead, those were fertile places to the east of the promised land. All of that encourages 
God's people to, to think about the original fertile garden in which God dwelled with his people before sin entered the world. God said, it's going to be like that again. And then in the closing verses, Micah speaks of the remnant's iniquities being tread underfoot and their sin cast into the depths of the sea. To cast something into the depths of the sea is to remove it as, as completely as possible. So God promises that his remnant will be saved and fully restored. Things will be made right once again for his remnant. Now again, throughout the book of Micah, there's lots of messages of, of just judgment. Right? The, the people's sins are described and highlighted. But these promises are what end those messages, all three of them. And they were fulfilled, in part, when God brought his people back from exile. That did happen during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. God brought his people back into the promised land. But many also believe that these promises will be fulfilled further in a day to come. Paul talks in Romans 11 of, of God grafting the Israelites back into the olive tree. And, and in that picture, God himself is the olive tree, and the Israelites are branches that were broken off to make room for the Gentiles, but, but will be grafted back into the olive tree once again. So, so the sense is that, that God's promises about a remnant in the book of Micah have been partially fulfilled among the Israelites when they were physically brought back from exile, but will be completely fulfilled in the future when they come back from spiritual exile. Now, when we think about our context today, to my knowledge, no one here is of Jewish, has Jewish ancestry. So because of that, we might ask the question, do these words have any application for us? If this is God speaking to his people in Micah's time, does it, does it have anything to do with us? It does. While the meaning for us today does not negate anything that God has promised to the Israelites, those promises are expanded to include us. Paul speaks in Romans 11 about how we as Gentile believers are, are grafted into the olive tree. The, the remnant of God's chosen people encompasses not just Jewish believers in Jesus, but Gentile believers as well. So the promises made to the remnant speak to the physical suffering and physical enemies and physical exile, which the Israelites experienced as the result of rebellion and sin. Can't take away from that. But the promises also speak to the spiritual enemy and spiritual exile, which we all face as, as the result of our rebellion and our sin. So just like God's people in the time of Micah deserved his just judgment upon their sin, so do we. We can't deny that. But just like God chose a remnant for himself to provide freedom from and victory over 
physical enemies, so does he provide freedom from and victory over spiritual enemies as well, which we've already said is, is Satan and sin. So let's, let's kind of look back at the sermon outline again and consider how God has fulfilled those things in your life and in my life through his work on our behalf. And I'll, I'll go a little bit out of order from, from how we walked through it um, as we went through Micah, but, but I'll cover them all, okay? So, so God is one who gathers us to himself. We are lost in our sin. We're, we're sheep without a shepherd, like Jesus described to the crowd in Matthew chapter 9, but God gathers us to himself. And, and although we are bruised and marred by our sin, it does not have to lead to destruction, even when we look at our own sin and feel hopeless, there is hope for those God has chosen for himself. God is the one who sets us free from our slavery to sin and to death. He gave his life on the cross to break the bonds holding us captive. It's not the Babylonians that have us captive. It's sin. He powerfully leads us away from captivity to sin and toward freedom in him. That's what he does for his remnant. God provided that deliverance because we could not. <laughs> we could not. As Paul says, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. We can't do it. There's nothing we can do in our own power to deliver ourselves from the bonds of sin. God gives us victory over our enemies. And again, Paul reminds us those enemies are the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of this present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In Jesus, we are victorious over those things which previously seemed to have defeated us. But God's remnant, he gives that victory. And as God gives us that victory, he cleanses us from the sin in our lives. So the things which control us and define us previously no longer do. The claim they have over us has been invalidated. We've, we've been cleansed. As his remnant, we are washed clean by the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. And God fully restores us. This is what we're looking to in the future. He doesn't just patch things up and, and fix the worst of our problems, leaving kind of everything else how it is. He fully restores us to the place of perfection in him. Our relationship with him is reconciled completely, and we will live in the fullness of that in eternity. Because God will reign over us and reign with us forever now and forevermore. He's our king of kings. It's, it's to his kingdom that we've been delivered. And he's not a tyrannical king. This is not a king that, that we ought to be scared of. He is a benevolent king who grants his authority to us that we might reign in his image and, and reign to his glory. That's, that's the hope. 
So there's hope for, for God's people then that they would come back from the exile, come back to the promised land. But the larger hope here, the expanded hope, looks forward to the new heaven and the new earth where we will be completely restored, brought back once and for all from exile to sin, that we will reign with Christ forever. That's the hope. And aren't we glad we have that hope? God's people then were glad that there was hope. But us now, boy, we ought to be glad that we have that hope. All of these promises are yours and mine in Jesus. In him we are part of his remnant, which he so powerfully and lovingly gives victory over enemies. So, so in the midst of the Assyrian and the Babylonians invading the land, I, I imagine it, I kind of think it would have, it might have been difficult for God's people to hang on to those promises as his chosen remnant, because this was all written before they invaded. You know, when Jerusalem was, was when they were laying siege to the city and, and the situation was dire, were the people able to cling to that promise? You know, I mean, everything around them might have led them to give up hope, give up the hope that the words spoken in Micah would come to pass. Their, their, their present reality may have caused them to doubt the promises. I, I don't know, but I, I could see that happening. In the midst of the things we face in our lives today, I, I think, too, there's times where it can be difficult to hang on to these promises. Our, our present reality might cause us to doubt the, this hopeful promise given to us. But, but our God is one who keeps his promises and proves himself faithful. He did bring his people back from exile. They came back into the promised land. God kept his promises. That's what he has done. That's what he's always done. And it's what he will continue to do in the present and for all eternity. That's simply who he is. So we can look back to how he has, has fulfilled those promises in the past and know that he will fulfill these promises in the future as well. We can trust in that. We began this whole study of Micah, noting that there were bookend statements asking who is like God. Who is like God? It's what, what I named the, the, the series. The answer is, there's no one. There is no one like our God. And it's, so it's why we ought to worship him and not idols, like we talked about one week. It's, it's, why, it's why all his judgments are fully just, because there's none like him. It's, it's why he's the ruler that we need. It's why he desires relationship with us, not, not, not balancing of the scales like we talked about last week. And it's why he keeps his promises to preserve a chosen remnant for himself. There is none like our God. And so as much as uh, the book of Micah is a story about the failures of God's people and the judgment that's going to come as a result of that, it is even more so a story about the power and faithfulness of God. That is what lies behind all of it. And just as that brought hope to the sinful people then, may it bring hope to us today. Who is like our God? There is none. We can look, 
We can try to find one, but, but we'll fail. There is none like our God. He is the God that we need, and my hope is that he's the God that we desire, knowing the promises that he makes to us. Would you stand with me? Let's come to God in prayer. Praise him that there is none like him. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for your words given to us in the Bible. And I thank you specifically for the book of Micah that we've been studying these past weeks. It gives us a, a clear look, God, at, at sin. And, and we know that apart from you, that is who we are. We are sinful people. We fall short. We live in rebellion of you. But there is hope. God, I thank you that, that the messages in Micah proclaim that hope. And I thank you that we can hold fast to those promises. God, you didn't have to choose us. You didn't have to call us to be part of your remnant. You didn't have to set us free and cleanse us and, and, and give us your authority to reign with you forever. You didn't have to do any of that but you chose to, and we are grateful, and we thank you for it. God, would you keep that reality in front of our minds always? May, 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 that, may that be one of the things that guides us as we go throughout our days. And I thank you for how that reveals your love for us. Your love is, is on full display in this book, God, and, and, and we're grateful for that. As we come to you now and sing some closing songs, again, worshiping you for who you are and the promises that you keep, God, may you be honored and may you be glorified as we do that. Amen.